Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where this Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Westside, and Merry Christmas to you. I hope and trust that you had a great time with your family and your friends yesterday. Hopefully, you didn't get sunburnt um, on the 70-degree Christmas. That was bizarre, wasn't it? I mean, that was strange. But I hope and trust that you guys had a great time. I'm sure many of you will still be celebrating um, Christmas as this really the kind of the thrust of the message today. But before we dive in, I just want to lay something before you. Um, this is the last Sunday of the year. So just by a round of applause, you guys did it. You're here, man. Just give yourself, you made it, man. That's awesome. There's no better way to close out the year than worshiping with God's people. But also, um, next Sunday is the first Sunday of the year. And um, every once in a while, we primarily just teach through books of the Bible here at Westside. But every once in a while, we'll stop and we'll pause and we'll just hit on pertinent topics that are applicable to us as a church family. And so starting next Sunday, we will begin a series entitled New Year, New Family. And that is how the gospel affects marriage, parenting, and singleness. And so please invite your friends and family to come and be a part of this. We're going to um, each week just look at what is marriage and what is the role of a husband and wife and what about this thing of parenting and then singleness. What does the Bible say about my dating life and this, that, and the other? And it really just says delete Tinder. You're not supposed to be... No, I'm just kidding, right? Um, but listen... What we do is we take the scriptures and we see that God's word is timeless. So it's always timely for us. So please invite your family and friends or anybody that this would be applicable to as we start this, um, this coming week. But hey, listen, I'm excited about today and I just want to dive in. His name was Ron Popeil and he was born in New York on May 3rd, 1935. This is a picture of Ron, and long before the OxyClean guy or any telemarketer or TV salesperson 
this guy is the grandfather of selling stuff on TV. He is said to have sold over a billion dollars worth of products. And actually, um, how he got on my radar was um, Ron actually passed away uh, this year. And so he prided himself as being the inventor of these as-seen-on-TV things. He actually sold his Ronco company in 2005. Listen to this. This guy started this company on his own, named it Ronco after himself, so he probably had a little complex or something there, but literally a zero-dollar business and quickly became worth $56 million, okay? Um, some of the inventions were the Showtime Rotisserie Barbecue, the Ronco Electric Food Dehydrator, the Pasta and Sausage Maker, and the Mr. Microphone, but wait, there's more, the Bagel Cutter, the Inside Shell Egg Scrambler. Just raise your hand. Do you remember Ron is selling stuff on TV? Now raise your hand. Um, did you buy any of the stuff? It's okay if you did, right? It's okay um, if you bought it. He's most famous for two cents. He would be doing something and he would say, and then you can set it and forget it, right? Yeah, awesome. This is great. This is great. But by far, Ron's most famous saying was, but wait, there's more, right? So he's giving you the sales pitch. He's showing you. And then he says, but wait, there's more. That was even the title um, of his biography. And you're like, Jason, what in the world does Ronco and but wait, there's more have to do with anything? Not really anything. I just saw this great meme this week um, that starts out with this. The wise men say, we'll give him gold and frankincense. And then the next slide says this, but wait, there's myrrh. <laughs> right? It's just a little dad joke, right? No, I'm, I'm just kidding. There actually um, is a point um, to the madness. But when it comes to this Sunday and the Sunday after Christmas, and especially the way that Christmas fell on a Saturday and just the weirdness of the schedule, Oftentimes, after we've made our rounds and the presents have been opened and the family leaves town and everything like that, we sort of have this understanding that Christmas is over in some sense. And I love what Pastor Tyler said. One of the beautiful things about the church calendar is in the ancient church calendar, it teaches us a number of things. But the first one is this, is that the feast, the celebration is always much longer than the anticipation. So we had just gone through Advent, which is the season of anticipation before we celebrate Christmas. And actually in the church calendar, Christmas tide is the 12 days. There is, it's not just a famous song, there's an actual 12 days of Christmas. But I love what one author said. He said, our society knows how to anticipate something but not how to sustain it. I think that's really good. I think we love sort of the anticipation and buying the thing on Amazon and watching the tracking and it's still in Earth City and it's still in Earth City and it's still in Earth City and then it's on your front door, right? It's just right. And then you get it and it's sort of like, well, then just mark that off the list. But if there's anything that the Christmas story tells us and particularly Matthew's account today. 
You see, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And, and the reason why that's important is because Matthew is always quoting the Old Testament. That's why right in the middle of our verses, there's a reference to an Old Testament passage. And what Matthew's goal is in his gospel is to show us this, that God is a promise maker and a promise keeper. But really, I think the thrust of the verses today um, is Ron's sort of applicable quote. But wait, there's more. There is so much more to the Christmas story that this isn't over, but literally what we are celebrating is a birth. And when we celebrate a birth, there is so much future anticipation of a life that is to be lived. And, and Matthew even starts the account by telling us this in verse 1, if you have your Bible. He says this, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. After Jesus was born. After Jesus was born. Translation, but wait, there's so much more to be celebrating. And I think we miss it in a number of ways and we sort of pack it up and put it up with the decoration and then we get on with the new year and the new goal. But the reality is, is that God has so much for us. But I think we miss it. And really in Matthew's account today, I want to look at three characters. There's two of them that miss sort of the rest of the Christmas story and then the wise men get it. And so just sort of as an outline for us, I want us to look at the anxious and then the apathetic, and then the adoring. There's two of them that miss it. They think that Christmas sort of ends with the birth, but then the wise men continue this journey because they understand that there's more to the story. So the first group is this, and it's the anxious, which is Herod. Um, verse 1 reads like this. It says... Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Now, listen, that is a jam-packed sentence, all right? And I think sometimes we just gloss over the Bible. But we believe here at Westside, this is a good spot for an amen, okay? So don't miss this. I got it teed up for you, right? But we believe at Westside that every word of the Bible is inspired, that, that God has given us every word. And so just the phrase, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, that's insane. Because you've got to understand, Bethlehem was just like this podunk town. So, I mean, sometimes we read it like this. This would probably hit a little bit differently. Now after Jesus was born in Donovan. Oh, right, now Puxico. Okay, just insert. Now you get it. Now you understand. It's like, is God doing something in just a small town like that? Yes, because God doesn't overlook the ordinary. And that is good news to us. We think that God only works in the extraordinary and on the mountaintops. But in the reality, we see God move in the day-to-day. -day. So Jesus is born there in Bethlehem in Judea. But then it says this, in the days of Herod the king. Now, now listen, I'm going to reread this, and then when I say Herod the king, I want you to go, dun, dun, dun. Okay, can we have fun reading the Bible today? All right, so here we go. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, awesome, now you're in it. Listen, 
Herod the king is a historical figure, and, and he plays a major role in the Christmas story. Um, we know a lot about this guy, Herod the king. Um, this is actually an old uh, graph um, of what Herod probably would have looked like. I always pull out these historical figures because I'm trying to show you something as your pastor. I'm going to do it every time that I preach. It's to constantly remind you that the book that you hold in your hand is not a fairy tale. It is historically accurate. It is credible. And this is a Roman king that we know about. Now, you need to know how this was set up. Um, we learned a couple weeks ago that Rome ruled the known world at the time. But as Rome began to expand their kingdom, they quickly realized, oh, a lot of people worship God or gods a number of ways. And they get particularly angry um, when you try to impose on them a new way of worship. So what we will do is we will just rule them and they will have to pay taxes. But when it comes to social affairs and religious issues, they can set up their own kings and they can deal with that their own way. The issue with Herod was is that he really wasn't Jewish and he really wasn't Roman, but he really loved being a king. So he just sort of like volunteered himself. Like, oh, hey, does um, there need to be a king to rule over people and execute power? Well, I'll just take that off your hands. That's no problem. I'll do that. And one thing we know from history is that this guy was paranoid. Like all the time. He was like a little tin hat, string theory, like the whole deal. Um, here's what we know about Herod from history. That his first wife and first child, he banished out of the kingdom because he did not like the way that she cooked and he was afraid that his son would steal his throne. So there's that, okay? So that was the first marriage. Um, he was actually married ten times Okay, so what's the saying? Like, fool me once, shame, right? Okay, so like the seventh wife should have probably been like, I don't think I want to marry you, okay? This hasn't really gone that well. Banished his first wife and child, was married ten times, and then, oh yeah, by the way, when he had three sons, in history, your sons would carry on the lineage of the throne that you ruled. He was so paranoid to get out of power that he had his three sons stabbed to death. That's Herod. And, and it's funny. And, and, and I believe that the Bible um, sometimes writes in the spiritual gift of irony and sarcasm, right? Because it says that Jesus was born as a king. And then he was born in the days of Herod the king. Um, Caesar said this, it is better to be Herod's pet pig than his son. That's how paranoid Herod was because Herod understood something. Look in verse 3. It says this, when Herod the king, see the Bible's being sarcastic, Herod the king Herod the Great, he's no king at all because the real king has been born. Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. You can underline that in your Bible. I want you to circle each character, circle Herod, and then underline troubled there in your Bible. 
The word troubled is a big compact word. It means anxious. It means fearful. It means full of dread. It's actually the same word that the shepherds experienced when they saw the angel. That's why the angel said, fear not, because the, uh, the shepherds were terrified. Herod is terrified. Why? Because Herod understands something about kings and kingdoms. And here it is. Kings don't share right? Kings are like little toddlers, okay? Um, They don't share because they are kings. And if a new king has been born and Herod is already insecure of his position and his identity, he is troubled to hear the news that there's a new king born because if there's a new king born, then that's a threat to my throne. And if that's a threat to my throne, then that's a direct threat to my eye. Identity. You see, Herod was anxious. And we do a lot of work um, understanding emotions because I believe that spiritual health and emotional health go side by side. There's a lie that's crept into a church that you can be spiritually mature and you can know a lot of the Bible, but emotional health doesn't really play a role in that. And that's completely untrue. And we see Herod reacting with some particular emotions, which tells me something. That Herod has an idol in his heart. And, and it's very clear that that idol is power. It's his throne. Um, there's a book that has been monumental in my spiritual formation. As a matter of fact, if, if, if you've asked me, hey, Pastor Jason, recommend a book, I've recommended this book to you. And it's Counterfeit Gods by Timothy Keller. And and what he does is he searches the heart and the scriptures and tells us of some common idols that we as human beings struggle with. But here's what he says. Oftentimes we are blind to our idols and we don't even realize that we are worshiping something other than Jesus. And he asks the question, then how can we find our idols? And he says this, look at your emotions When something happens and you react, what are the first emotions that arise to the surface? Here's a direct quote. A sure sign of the presence of idolatry is inordinate anxiety, anger, or discouragement. You see, when our idols are thwarted, so if we lose a good thing, it makes us sad. But if we lose an idol, it absolutely devastates us. Now, back to Herod. Herod has received news that a new king is born, and he reacts in anxiety and fear. So if Pastor Timothy Keller's quote is true, then we can do some work and realize this, that Herod finds his identity in the throne that he has. But he hasn't just found his identity. If something else threatens that identity, he must protect it. Which leads me to this. Any identity we erect, we will protect. That's why when something goes out of our control or something unexpected happens, all of these emotions arise to the surface because our idols are what we find our identity, our worth, and our value in. 
And because nothing else is able to withstand the weight and pressure of our identities, we always have to protect them. So I want to do a little bit more work here. Um, In the book, Pastor Timothy Keller has this graph, which I think is really, really helpful. Um, Over in this column, he says, what we seek. Let's just drop down to power, success, winning, and influence because that's what Herod wanted. So Herod is seeking this power. What's the price that he's willing to pay? Burdened all the time, responsibility, anxiety. Um, Drop down and look at verse 16 in your Bible. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all of the male children in Bethlehem and in all of that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. When our identities are threatened, we protect them. And so Herod says, well, I'll just wipe out any potential kings. So that's the price that he's willing to pay. What's his greatest nightmare? Humiliation. Exposure. He's been exposed. That's why he said when he realized that he had been threatened by the wise men, he became furious. But how do other people feel around Herod? Well, they feel used all the time because they're just a commodity to get to more power. And what is his problem emotion? It's always going to be anger and frustration. How about a few more? Because this is really painful. So please, let's continue, right? Um, How about if we seek um, comfort, right? We want um, privacy, a lack of stress, freedom, nothing to come in that's um, unannounced. What's the price we're willing to pray? Um, Reduced productivity, you know? Hey, there's a deadline. So what? (laughs) Um, I don't work after hours because when I clock out, I clock out, buddy, okay? So I don't really care if I'm the employee of the month, woo, 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 right? So I can get a free donut from Donut House or something, right? So I don't really care about that. Um, What's your greatest nightmare? Demands, obligations, deadlines. How do other people feel around you? Hurt and ignored because you don't care about them? Um, What's your problem emotion? It's restlessness and boredom. Um, how about approval, affirmation, love, relationship? What's the price you're willing to pay? Less of an independence. Why? Because you are codependent on other people. Because you don't know who you are. Um, what's your greatest nightmare? Uh, you and Marty McFly. Rejection, right? Um, how, do you, how do others often feel around you? Smothered. Why? Because it's never enough. Because it's never enough, because we need to spend time, and it's always, and it's right. And so you love the kitten so much. You're like, oh, pretty little kitty, pretty little kitty, pretty little. And then the kitty's been smothered to death, right? That's what it is. And what's your problem emotion? It's self-doubt and bitterness. Because then, as Jonathan Edwards says, when you idolize people, you demonize them. So you put all of your hopes and dreams in that relationship. And then when that person doesn't get, I cannot believe they have never and they always and they'll never do that again. And um, hey, let's keep going. Um, How about control? Self-discipline, certainty, demands, that's what you want. What's the price that you're willing to pay? Loneliness and a lack of spontaneity. 
Because if other people come into the picture, um, I, I have a tough time trying to control other people, though I try. Though I try, right? So I'm okay with being a little bit more autonomous. And um, what's your greatest nightmare is uncertainty. Um, it's, hey, I was thinking, how about we, ah, right? Ah, right, that's not in the calendar. Um, how do other people feel around you condemned and judged all the time? Why? Because you're intervening on the calendar. That's not the way that I do that. And so you punish people. What's the problem emotion that you feel? Anxiety and worry all the time. Why? Because the only thing that's certain in life is uncertainty. Do you see now how these idols are not so far removed from us? And Herod finds his identity in his throne. And he's willing to pay any price. If Herod only understood, if Herod only understood, he could still be king. He could still execute all of his daily responsibilities first under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You see, Herod thought the Christmas story was a threat and a burden. And you know, I'll be honest, I have a lot of conversations with people and they view the good news of Jesus Christ as bad news. Because they think if they surrender their life to Jesus, then they have to give up X, Y, and Z or anything um, that's... They, they use a camouflage term and they say that it's fun. I have to give up all of this stuff, this fun, this dating life or this, that, and the other. And the reality is, is that it's an idol. And can I just say something to you today? That is an exhausting way to live. It's exhausting to live that way. And I know it's so scary to let go of that idol because the fear of I don't know who I'm going to be. But can I just tell you this? There will be more joy and more peace in your life when you surrender that to Jesus Christ. Because here's the good news. Idols always demand that you sacrifice for them. That's why we see in the Old Testament with Elijah, they cut themselves, they do this, they offer sacrifices. Idols always make you sacrifice for them. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ sacrificed Himself for you. That's the difference. There's more to this story, but we miss it. Because some of us are anxious in our identity like King Herod. Um, the second group of characters is this, the apathetic. And those are the priests and the scribes. Um, I learned something this week. Isn't that great? I was studying the Bible and I learned something. I had never paid these guys very much mind. Like, I mean, just, just read it. So, um, verse 3 when Herod uh, heard this, he was troubled, all Jerusalem with him. And then here it is, verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then they quote the Old Testament, man, chapter and verse. So who are the priests and the scribes? Hey, hey, listen, kids, listen to this real quick. This is crazy. There was a time, this is going to blow your mind. There was a time when there was no Google. It's nuts. When you had a question, 
you had to search people out who actually knew the answer. So Herod, unfamiliar with this prophecy, goes and gets the experts. Because remember, there's a difference in social affairs and religious affairs. And so Herod goes and gets the priests and the scribes. The priests were employed at the temple. They offered the sacrifices for the people. They led them in worship. They were experts in that. The scribes were the ones who transcribed, that's where the word comes from, the Old Testament law. They are the reason why we have the copy of the Old Testament preserved like it is. These guys were so serious about this, and they revered, listen to this, they revered the name of God so much that when they were writing the Hebrew Scriptures and they came to the name Yahweh, they would leave out the vowels, write just those other letters, throw away that pen, wash their hands and wash their face, put on a new robe, and then continue writing. That's how serious they were about this. Oh, by the way, if you wrote down and didn't cross your T or dot your I, you were put to death, okay? So here's what I'm trying to say. These guys handled the Word of God way more seriously than you and I could ever imagine. Ever imagine. And I know what you're saying. Jason, so what's wrong with these guys? The priests and the scribes, they love the Word of God. They were so serious about this. How could you say that these guys were apathetic? Well, look at the disconnect between verse 5, 6, and 7. Verse 5, he got them together and then they quote it right there, the Bible drill. Sword drill, um, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea. Boom, they do it. And then now look at verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Here it is. And he sent them to Bethlehem. Go and search. And so, verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. Who went on their way? The wise men did. Well, what did the priests and the scribes do? Here it is. Jack nothing. They didn't do anything. They quoted the Bible verse and they stayed where they were. You see, they had memorized the prophecy, but don't miss this. They did not obey the prophecy. And my, oh my, in that town, if you were to ask who is going to inherit the kingdom of God, you would have said the priest and the scribes. Of course, they are the ones. But you see, they were not moved by it. Um, The Apostle Paul would tell a young Timothy in 2 Timothy these words. Um, He says that they arrive always learning, but they never arrive at the knowledge of truth. Let's see if this illustration will help. Francis Chan, who's a great author in his book, Crazy Love, talks about the great commission of Jesus. The great commission of Jesus, when he tells his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, baptizing them, so forth and so forth. And Francis Chan says, notice what Jesus says. Jesus does not say to the apostles, teach everybody else what I said. That's not how it goes. 
It is teaching them to obey what I have said. It is not just information, it is also application. And Francis Chan said this, he says, imagine this. Imagine if my family's getting ready to leave the house, and before we leave, I go to my four kids, and I say, hey guys, I need you to put this up, clean this up, do this. We're getting ready to book it, we're going to Granny's house, we're going to hang out, but I need you to do this before we go. So I go off, and I do my stuff, and I come back in the room, and there they are, just kind of sitting in a little circle, and nothing's put away. And Francis Chan goes, and then I asked my kids, guys, what are you doing? You guys are just sitting in a circle. I told you guys to put this up and to clean your room. And then the oldest goes, oh, daddy, daddy, are you ready for this? Are you ready? All right, guys, gather around, gather around. You ready? One, two, three. Hey, guys, I need you to clean your room because we are going to Granny's house. So you need to do this. And daddy, we memorized everything that you said. We, we memorize everything. And then he goes, no, guys, please, that's awesome, that's great. I need you to clean your room. I need you to put this up. We are getting ready to head out. So he goes back into his room, does a few things, and comes back in, and then there they are in the circle, just sitting around together. All their eyes are closed. And he said, I just peek in, and I listen, and I hear them pray, oh, God, please give us strength this day that we might put away all the things in our room God, this world is so dark, and it is so dreary. God, do you get the point? You see, a father's request was that they just clean the room. But rather, what they've done is they memorized everything that their dad said. They prayed about it, but yet they were still not moved by it. I love what Sorian Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher, says about these verses. Although the scribes could explain where the Messiah was to be born, they remained quite unperturbed in Jerusalem. They did not accompany the wise men to seek Him. Similarly, we may know the whole of Christianity, yet make no movement. The power that moved heaven and earth leaves us completely unmoved. What a difference in these two. The three kings had only a rumor to go by, but it moved them not to make the long journey. The scribes were much more informed, much better versed, yet they sat and they studied the scriptures like so many of us, but it did not make them move. So here's the question. Who had more truth? The three kings who actually followed a rumor or the scribes who remained sitting with all their knowledge yet did nothing. Um, here's the sentence. I believe the greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ is not atheism outside the church. The greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ is apathy inside the church. We have just celebrated that the God who spoke the cosmos into existence has come and walked among us. And hey, listen, that's only half the story. The rest of it is this, that he is coming again. And we don't know the day or hour. So we live every day and every hour as if it is the day or hour in which he should return. So is there any difference 
any difference in our life, not from what we know, but from what we show. Listen, how do you cure apathy? Because I believe it's the number one problem in the church. There are so many Bible. Listen, we do not lack. The church of Jesus Christ in all of human history has never had the type of resources that we have of biblical knowledge. I mean, you can get apps that read the Bible to you. Just don't put it on Revelation late at night. It'll freak you out, okay? I mean, like we have all of this knowledge, all of this information, but so little movement. So what's the cure? Please listen to this. Application annihilates apathy. Application annihilates apathy. I do not even engage in deep theological debates now. Uh, oh, pastor. Oh, pastor. Um, um, I mean, can you lose your salvation? I mean, because if you said the prayer, but then Hebrews 6 says those who tasted and then no more. And then what about the predestination and then the free will? And then, yeah, when's the last time you prayed out loud with your wife? Oh, yeah, well, what about um, tongues? Speaking in tongues. I mean, is it a sure sign? Do you got the Holy Spirit unless you do that? Or, hey, have you forgiven your dad? I mean, we have so much information. Everything at our fingertips. And we use that information to justify our lack of obedience. So for some of us, the goal this coming year Listen, here's the sentence. For some of us, this new year, we don't need to study the parts of the Bible that we don't know. What we need to do is we need to obey the parts that we do know. When we advertise those Bible reading plans, I could give a rip if you don't read through the Bible this coming year. I would much rather you maybe just read through the New Testament and then work on forgiveness and peace and friendship and honesty and really apply that to your life than blow through the entire Bible and check off little boxes and yet apply nothing to our life. You see, the priests and the scribes, they missed it. Why? Because they were apathetic. There was no application Herod's anxious, the priests and the scribes are apathetic, and then here are the wise men. I mean, like, this is so much like God. They are the ones who adore Jesus. They actually get it. Do you know how controversial that is? They are from the East. They are pagan um, magicians, almost, if you will. They're closer to Harry Potter and Dumbledore than they are Moses or anything like that. And it is shocking that God would reveal His truth to them and that they would seek it out. I read pages and pages and pages and... Go ahead and finish it. What's the next word? Pages about the star. Oh, it's Jupiter and Saturn. And then in the Chinese calendar, we got this, that. Hey, how about this? How about this? I'm going to say something to you that a lot of pastors never say. Um, was the star real, Pastor Jason? Did that? Can we solidify that in history? Um, I think we can, but how about this? Number one, I don't know. Real shocking. And number two, how about this? It's a miracle. You good with that? I'm good with that if you're good with that. It is a miracle. God leads these wise men to Jesus from the east. And they get it. They worship. 
Do you see how many times the posture is used? That um, they left, they went on their way when they saw the star going into, they fell down, they worshiped. Verse 2, where is this who's been born, King of the Jews, that we may worship? All of that. How about this question? What does true worship really look like? What does true worship really look like? Because some of us have it confined to a Sunday morning experience. And then some of us uh, have it confined to YouTube videos when there's a group of people in an old church and their hands are raised. And oh man, if worship could just be like... We, We are so confused as to what worship even is. But I believe these wise men can teach us. The first thing is this, um, obedience is worshipful. Obedience. Look at verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. They followed the star. How about this? The question is not, is God leading me in my life? I get that question a lot with people. Now, I just want to know God's will. Should I do? I don't know about this situation. What should I do? Should I do this? The question, we've already established through Advent that God is present and at work in my life. Amen? The question is not, is God leading me? Here's the question. Are you following God's lead? That's the question. And it's through the ordinary means of prayer, Bible reading, living in community, those simple things. True worship looks like obedience. Do you know what Jesus said in the Gospels? Jesus said, this is God, by the way. Um, These letters are in red. Jesus says, um, hey, follower of God, if you are going to the temple to worship and you have your sacrifice and your money and you've made the journey and while you're in line to give your sacrifice, you see somebody that you've gossiped about or have ought against or are angry, you need to leave your sacrifice where it is, step out of the worship service, ask to speak with them out in the lobby and say this, hey, I'm so sorry for what I did. Please forgive me because that's true worship. Do you know what a joy it would be if I checked in on some of you who maybe missed church on a Sunday and you text back or said, well, hey, man, so sorry we missed Sunday, but uh, you know, I've been needing to have this conversation with my mom and dad. And so uh, I met them halfway and had a cup of coffee. Do you know what my response would be to you? Oh, my friend, you had a true worship service. You had a true worship service. It looks like obedience. But then the second thing is this, humility. It looks like humility. Look at verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Did you know all through the scriptures we see that your physical posture is an example of your spiritual posture in your heart? That's why sometimes, just like we did today in the Gospels, would you stand for the reading of God's Word, for the reverence of it and the authority of it. When a bride walks into a wedding, people stand. When a judge walks into a courtroom, why? Because the physical posture denotes something. It means something. But these men don't stand up. They bow down. And listen to this. They bow down to a baby. Because that level of humility, that level of humility will take you to the mat. 
It looks like obedience. It looks like humility. And then this, it looks like sacrifice. Look at the end of verse 11. They fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. Um, By the way, how many wise men were there? Right? My wife says, everybody's afraid to answer your questions because they're afraid it's going to be wrong, right? Um, this is actually true, okay? So if you said three, you're wrong. Love you, okay? Um, love you. We don't know. We are not told the number. By the way, they do not visit Jesus the night that he's born. Jesus is probably about two years old, remember? After the birth of Jesus. We think that it was three because of the three gifts that they give. And we could have a whole series on the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. A lot of people say the gold denotes the kingship of Jesus. I believe it means something different. Mary and Joseph are on the run. And they actually go to Egypt after this to run away from Herod. Well, what money are you going to use while you're on the run? And so many scholars believe that this gold Mary and Joseph used to fund their trip as they ran away from Herod. You say, what's so significant about that? Well, it's this. Where God's will guides you, His provision will provide for you. All God's asking you to do is just step out and say yes. The gold and then the frankincense and the myrrh, these spices, some of them used for burial. Listen, here's what it means at its most elementary level. These were costly and they were expensive. And they laid them at the feet of Jesus. And they said, you are more valuable than that. That's why we give tithes and offerings. That's why we do that. Because what we are saying, it's an act of defiance. God, I'm giving you this to, to, to show that I love you more than I love this money. God, I'm serving to show that I love these people and whom I'm serving more than my time and my comfort. True worship looks like sacrifice. And then the last thing is this. True worship It looks like change. That's just the best way that I could say it. I love this. This is my verse. Always look for a gold nugget, and this is my nugget. Verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country. Three words. By another way. What does that mean? It means this. When you truly encounter Jesus... You leave a different way than you came. Did you know that it's actually bad news to hear the phrase that Jesus loves you just the way that you are? That's actually not good news. One author puts it this way. Jesus loves us in spite of who we are and loves us too much to keep us there. You see, when you encounter Jesus, you always go another way. This is the last Sunday of the year. And as many of you, as we close, Tyler and Kayla lead us in a time of response. As you tally up this past year, man, there's probably been some heartache. There's been conflict. There's been a lot of difficulty. There's also been a lot of beauty, a lot of God's provision, a lot of breakthroughs. But do you know what my prayer is for Westside for this coming year? That we would go a different way. Do you know what my prayer for you is this year? Is that you would go a different way. 
Do you know what my prayer for your family is? That's why we're doing a whole series on the family, is that your family would go a different way. And the tagline and the banner over this next year would be very simply what the wise men said. We have come to worship him. We have come to worship him. Westside, would you stand to your feet and would you listen to these beautiful words? Every head bowed and every eye closed. When the carols have been stilled, when the star-topped tree is taken down, when family and friends are gone home, and when we are back to our schedules, the real work of Christmas begins to welcome the outcast, to heal a broken planet, to feed the hungry, to build bridges of trust, not walls of fear, to share our gifts, to seek justice and peace for all people, and to bring Christ's light to the world. This is what we pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you so thankful for your word. And God, I pray what would just be cemented in our hearts is, but wait, there's more. There's so much more that it's not over. It's actually just begun. That this moment, the arrival of Jesus Christ has literally split time and history in half. B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. God, if it's so significant, may it change our life. May we go a different way. God, I pray for all of us in the room today. Many of us in the room are like Herod so anxious about our idols and God if we're honest today if we could just be a hundred percent honest with you we're so exhausted we would break down weeping and we would be transparent and you would just say I'm so tired of fighting for the position and the control and the acceptance and I'm burning bridges and relationships and God I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit today that we would simply lay those idols down that you would give us the supernatural power to be self-aware God I pray for some of us in the room today that are like the priests and the scribes we have grown up in church we have all the badges all the medals we've memorized it we've done all of that but there is little to no application in our life God what a tragedy to be able to quote Bible verses about forgiveness, but not be able to describe the sweet taste of it. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would empower us to not just know, but to show these marvelous truths. And then God, for all of us, I pray that we would be like the wise men, that we would obey, that we would humble ourselves, that we would sacrifice our time, talents, and treasures, and that we would worship you. Holy Spirit, comfort those who need comforting, convict those who need convicting, and compel us to worship you, Jesus. We pray all of these things in the holy, in the beautiful, and the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.